Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Nick Griffin, founding partner and chief investment officer at Munro Partners. After a stint with Colonial First State, Nick upended his life and moved to Scotland, where he was a member of Deutsche Bank's highly rated oil and gas team. Upon returning to Australia, he joined K2 Asset Management, where he was their head of international equities. In 2016, he and his partners founded Munro Partners, where their flagship global growth fund has just passed five years in existence, returning an impressive 16.8% per annum since inception. In this episode, we learn how to avoid selling your growth stocks too early, why he sold all the firm's positions in Chinese stocks such as Tencent and Alibaba, and he tells us about the biggest investment opportunity since the internet. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of this wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the show. Good to be chatting with you again. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's been a couple of years since we've had you on. It was uh, it was a fun chat the first time, so I thought it was about time that we had you back on and uh, and got some of your latest views on the market. I noticed that you've actually just recently passed the five-year mark for the Munro Partners Global Growth Fund, a pretty big milestone there, and you've managed to rack up some pretty impressive returns along the way, 18% per annum or a little bit over, over five years. What have been some of the most kind of unexpected surprises along the journey so far? Uh, yeah, thanks, Patrick, and, and, and thanks very much for having us. So, yes, we did, we did just rack up our five-year anniversary, which was um, an exciting day for us, and as you said, 18% per annum. I suppose what was unexpected is, is that it actually worked out, I suppose, you know, that the maths actually added up in the end. Um, it's funny, when you look back at it, um, you know, when we invest globally, when we look at our global growth funds, we, we, we sort of build research packs for every stock we invest in. And every company has to pass a hurdle for investment, which is that the company has to be able to, we have to be able to mathematically prove it can double within five years. So that's 100% return within five years, which roughly equals 15% per annum. Um, and our simple mantra is that earnings growth drives stock prices. So, so if the company's earnings can double in five years, we generally think the share price can double within five years. And so that's essentially what we try to prove with every single stock idea that ends up in the Monroe Global Growth Fund. Uh, and obviously, some work out and, and some don't. Um, and the rest is, you know, how you work out the ones that are going to work out and do well and the ones and how you remove the ones that don't. But ultimately, you should be able to construct a portfolio that does roughly 15% per annum through that times horizon. And, and that's, that's 
effectively what happened. Um, and obviously, there's lots of bumps and twists and turns along the journey. Uh, but ultimately, the mass prevails in the long run. And the mass prevails that if the earnings grow, then the share prices will grow and the share prices will follow their earnings over time. And, and that's what happened. So I suppose the biggest surprise is that is that, 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 that our mass was right. And, you know, our risk management controls worked along the way to remove the losers and focus on the winners and ultimately drive yourself towards that double-digit return target, which is what we managed to achieve. You managed to do all that without, correct me if I'm wrong, without any negative years as well. How do you actually manage that downside? So, I mean, obviously everybody likes 15% per annum returns. I'm sure we'd all love to double our money every five years. But doing so without, you know, significant drawdowns and negative years is is, is a pretty hard task. What, what are some of the downside protection measures you use to achieve that? Yeah, so so actually, it's a, it's an important point you make. So so as we as we pass our five years, we're actually doing a rebranding at the moment, Patrick, and um, and that rebranding will probably be out by the time this recording out. And we have a we have a news catchphrase that that Taylor and Bianca and John have come up with here at Monroe Partners, which is called "Invest in the Journey." Okay, and and it's invest in the journey. So it is always a journey. Okay, so it's that the path to fifteen percent per annum returns, unfortunately, is not a straight line. I, I, I wish it was, um, it, but it's just not. Um, for every company you invest in, there are twists on the tail as to how it gets to where you get to. And then along the way, there is also the market gyrations that we deal with. Um, part of our success here at Monroe Partners is we do run the Monroe Global Growth Fund, which is Australia's only absolute return global growth investment company. So, so it's our best global growth ideas, but with some downside protection tools. And these are things like the ability to short sell, um, the ability to hold more than up to 100% cash, the ability to to buy put options on the market, um, the ability to manage the currency, and so what that all those tools do is just smooth the journey for your clients. Um, and so, so ultimately, those tools have helped us through the periods like COVID, etc. Um, but also, most importantly, fundamentally, at the bottom is the companies we're investing in are, are being driven by these big structural changes that are happening in the world. And those structural changes are ultimately driving their earnings growth, regardless of what happens in the world, you know, regardless of, you know, the political situation or the or the interest rate situation. You know, e-commerce will take share from regular commerce regardless. Cloud computing will take share regardless. Um, and so ultimately, it's the quality of the companies that we're investing in and, and the earnings growth that they're producing that the market will keep coming back to over time. And everything else is just short-term bumps that we, we do make an effort to manage. But, but, but really, at its core, is, it's the quality of the companies you're invested in and your ability to manage your risks around the ones that you've got wrong along the way. We've seen a lot of kind of macro commentators and value investors this year, Jeremy Grantham, for, for one example, who has been calling, you know, the end of the growth era. A lot of it's kind of centered around inflation increasing and the long outperformance that growth has seen, historical outperformance of value. From your point of view, why do you think that global growth remains, you know, the place to be in the years ahead? Yeah, so importantly, we're talking about growth equities here, not 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 GDP growth. Um, and so importantly, you know, it is the lack of GDP growth that is that is creating this good environment for for global growth equities because it is the low growth world we live in and the low interest rate world we live in that that does create this good environment for growth equities. Um, and so, so we're not going to say that's not true. That 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 is true. That that that's been with us for a while now. Uh, and if you if you were to pose me a scenario where interest rates were going to go up dramatically or inflation was going to run rampantly out of control, 
um, and you know we saw interest rates of sort of three, four, five percent again, then then I would agree Gro- global growth equities will will struggle through that transition period of interest rates going from one to five. Um, that 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 is true. Um, but if you just take a bigger bigger step back, the reason why we're in this period and the reason why this period exists is is more so prevalent today than it's ever been, um, which is that, that that interest rates are low because there's too much debt in the world. Um, we racked up a lot of debt during the financial crisis. Um, we never paid it back. Um, and so we can't actually cope with rates being higher. We've just had the COVID crisis and we've racked up even more debt. Um, and, and so now we can't even cope with rates going to 3%. So, so yes, there's a scenario where rates could back up to say one to three and cause a little bit of volatility. But this concept that interest rates are going to get to five, six, seven percent, I find very hard to believe um, because ultimately you'll end up in a big recession and rates will go back down again. Um, so, the, so, the, so the first thing you have to do is, are you comfortable with the interest rate environment? And I'd say broadly we are. Um, the second thing you have to point out is that, you know, ultimately we are in this low growth environment because we are, you know, reaching the, the ends of what the world can create in terms of growth, you know. So we can't lower rates much lower. Um, and, you know, the, we, we're effectively in this low GDP environment. Um, and, and from that point of view, most of the companies that we're investing in and most of the profits that we're making are out of things that are going through a transition, either the smartphone transition or the cloud computing transition or the energy transition. Um, and those opportunities will continue to present themselves. Um, and they'll continue to present themselves because we know that technology is getting faster. We know that we need to do these transitions at a faster and faster rate. Um, and so from our point of view, you know, the environment for growth equities is as exciting today as it was when we started and as it was 10 years ago. And, and that's because we know that compute power will accelerate from here and we know that the energy transition is, is on our doorstep. And so, so provided you take that step back and, do, you're, you know, you're comfortable with the overall environment, you know, these opportunities have presented themselves for, for decades now and will continue to present themselves into the future. And, and our job as your global growth investor is to go and find them. One of the common pitfalls, I guess, for growth investors is uh, is selling too early, <laughs> whether it be Afterpay, Amazon, Bitcoin, even Uber. I'm sure anybody who's been around markets long enough has probably got a story of uh, of the one that got away. It's particularly important, I guess, for for someone like yourself, where you know you've got these companies that can grow for long periods of time. So I guess before we get into the the how and and the why of it, I was hoping you might be able to give us a bit of a story perhaps of one from your past where you have kind of let it go too early. You know, what's one that got away for you? Oh, there's so many. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many. Um, Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll give you a really simple one, okay? Um, And and that'll maybe help people understand – understand the story and how these transitions work. And so 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 if we just take a big step back and and maybe it comes back to your question around why why growth will continue to work is is what a lot of people have missed in the last two decades or at least particularly in the last decade is that you know they they constantly and and this is, comes back to sort of your Jeremy Grantham comments you know people big macro guys they always like to sit there and say you know the macro economy is going to do this and that's going to affect the equity market this way does that make sense so they'll just say you know inflation is going to do this so the equity market's going to do that and, and 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 you know broadly on a short you know 3 to 6 month view maybe even on 12 month view that that could be correct 
but what they consistently miss is that the equity market is not actually the economy, okay? So the equity market is the top 500 companies in the United States. It's the top 200 companies in Australia. And so these companies are growing vastly superior than, say, your average small business or pizza shop on the corner or pharmacy business. And they're managing to do this usually in the last decade or two via digitalization. So digitalization is effectively allowing companies to grow well beyond their borders and and well beyond um, the country that they live in and well beyond all these other places. And so classic examples in Australia, Afterpay, you know, so so ultimately, you know, an online an online pay, be buy now, pay later in Australia, and then they take it to the US and it works. They take it to the UK and it works. And so it goes from effectively less than a billion to 40 billion in a very short space of time. Um, on a much grander scale, you know, that's effectively what Google's been doing since its IPO. Um, you know, Google's effectively gone from 50 billion to 2 trillion. Um, and continually to grow share. And so people are just missing this fact that these companies are growing beyond their borders because of digitalization. Uh, and as they grow because of digitalization beyond their borders, you know, it's beyond what, you know, most normal people who look at the market think about when they say, look at, say, a CBA or, or, or a BHP. So people have just completely missed these mega caps. Um, and, and, and over the last decade, I've had so many conversations with people as to how big could these companies get, and we'll just pull up the spreadsheet and say, well, mathematically, they can get considerably bigger from here because there's still so much areas for them to grow to. Um, biggest miss, or one we got off too early, was probably Apple. Um, Apple, you know, we found it in 2009, uh, 15 times earnings. The iPhone had just come out. Nobody thought the iPhone was going to be going to be a big deal. They thought it was a niche product, a bit like people think about Tesla today. And and ultimately, smartphones took a share from 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 feature phones. Up they grew, and you rode this smartphone cycle for Apple for the best part of seven years. Um, and so, from our point of view, we owned it from 2009 to 2016, um, and we sold it in 2016. Uh, we'd made about six or seven times our money. Uh, we thought we'd ridden that whole S-curve of disruption of smartphones, and what we missed is that Apple would use that software to move into payments, to move that ecosystem was so much stickier than what everyone thought about, and all the other things that they could drag into it. Um, and so, that's a classic example where you've got off a little bit early. I think we've missed the last 200%, unfortunately, um, which would have turned it, by the way, from a seven-bagger into a 21-bagger uh, if you do the mass. And so from that point of view, um, yeah, that would be the one that we've got off too early. And that's not a mistake we're planning on making with companies like Google, for instance, um, which, would you believe it, even after 20 years since its IPO, or nearly 20 years since its IPO, is one of our best performers this year. And I find it staggering that people still can't value Google properly today versus its potential growth. Um, and, and, that, and this year is just a classic example of that what is your process for selling stocks so that you try to avoid getting sucked into that trap like how do you how do you prevent yourself from falling into another apple situation yeah so i think it's important to think about what your one-year price target is and what your five-year price target is Um, and so we would set a five-year price target and it would roll going forward every five years Um, and your one-year price target is is this company just a bit ahead of itself um, and so the important thing to remember is, is companies get ahead of themselves all the time. Um, you know, they've had a huge run and you, you get, you feel like you've got to sell some and maybe you should sell a little bit. Uh, but if your five-year price target still has upside, I, there's still areas for this company to disrupt, then, then don't get off just because the company's a bit ahead of itself. And, and, and often you'll find yourself, you know, I'm going to sell it because I'm worried about interest rates or I'm worried about inflation. Or I'm worried about Donald Trump. You know, that's got nothing to do with whether Apple or Google or Afterpay or Amazon is going to continue to execute. These companies are just there executing every day. And so the share price is just a reflection of that. And so 
So it's important to remember that there are only a few winners. Your job is to find those few winners and run them for long periods of time. Your other problem is your your other job is to to recognize when you've got a loser really quickly and avoid it. And that's 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 the that's the pure art of what you're trying to do. Day in, day out, every day. Um, and and when you're running those winners and, and they're winning, if the facts haven't changed, you don't need to change your view. Um, you know, valuation is important, but it's not the be-all and end-all on a very long-term view, if that makes sense. So you can manage volatility, that's fine, but don't completely sell out of a stock just because you're worried about something that has nothing to do with whether that company's finished executing on its opportunity. Um, if the facts haven't changed, don't change your view. You mentioned they're cutting your losers. For you, is a loser a stock that's losing money or is like as in the price is going down or are you more focused on what is happening inside the company? You know, if if you buy a company and it falls by 20% for no reason, is that something that concerns you? Do you want to buy more or or are you concerned that the, the, the price is falling? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and so, so how do you? So, so it sounds really simple, you know, to avoid the losers, you know, like to avoid the Blackberries or the Ebays or the <laughs> or the, uh, the you know the, the ones that the Yahoos of the world. Uh, but at the time, they all seemed like a good idea. Um, and so the reality is, is every single person listening to this podcast has a company that they've probably lost eighty percent on. They bought it at the time; it was a good idea. It's currently sitting in the bottom drawer, and they can't bring themselves to look at it. And and I can assure you, fund managers are exactly the same. Um, and so you just need a process to recognize you've made a mistake. Um, and so we use, we use triggers or, or price as, as a way of recognizing. So your point is very good. If a company falls 20% either from cost or from peak, you should review it like, and you know, top, top to bottom review, you know, so in our point of view, that, 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 that triggers a, a trigger or an investment review. We're not forced to sell the stock, but we're forced to completely review the investment case. And, you know, is there something we've missed here? Um, and if there's nothing we've missed, we'll decide to keep it. You know, it's just the price has fallen 20% and it'll be fine. But we can only keep it for 30 days. And in 30 days' time, we have to review it again. 30 days' time, you have to review it again. Um, and so as you keep reviewing it, you eventually realize that, you know, BlackBerry's not the smartphone winner. You know, the, the touchpad peak keyboard's not going to be the big winner. It's the touchscreen or that eBay, you know, doesn't have logistics in the back end, which is stopping it from being a good e-commerce provider. And so eventually you'll find out what you've done wrong. And that has a twofold benefit. One, it allows you to step aside from the company that you don't think will end up being the few winner. And two, it will then allow you to take that capital and go put it into Apple or go put it into Amazon or go put it into, you know, Afterpay or PayPal, et cetera. And so, so ultimately, generally, whenever you do this, you're always looking in the right place. You just haven't picked the wrong company. And there's nothing wrong with that. That happens all the time. Um, you know, it's mathematically impossible to be right all the time. You know, you know, the top 50 companies make up 50% of the entire return of the US stock market in the last 90 years. And in that time frame, 25,000 companies listed. So don't be ashamed that you've made a mistake. Just have a process for for recognizing it and moving it on because that will obviously then help you find your eventual winner. Uh, and that winner will run for a long period of time. And so that, that, that's what we do. And that's, that's real. That's the real, the real trick to it, I'm afraid. Um, that's, that's, that's the, that's the key, you know, it's about running your winners and, and identifying your losers quickly and moving them on. Easy to say, but difficult to do in practice. Correct. (laughs) Um, China has been the source of a lot of news lately, regardless of whether you're in Australia or, uh, or, or the US or what, but 
There's been another round of government crackdowns on tech companies, on education companies, on all kinds of things, uh, not to mention the uh, well-publicised relationship difficulties that we've been having with China. But one thing that stood out to me, despite you having a pretty broad global mandate, was that there was uh, little, possibly no exposure to China at all. I couldn't see Alibaba or Tencent in your portfolios, which are, are usually popular ones with uh, with global growth investors. So could I just get a, an understanding of what your reasoning is for excluding this part of the market from your portfolio? Yeah, so so great question and 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 topical. Um, so so if you looked at this portfolio or last year, this time last year, Alibaba was the biggest investment in this in the portfolio um, at a seven and a half percent position, and and ten cent was 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 in the top ten. So so we have changed our view here, uh, and maybe I'll just talk you through why. Um, so from our point of view, it comes back to that trigger process. You know, we the the initial sign that something was wrong and. Many will argue that was something there were signs well before that, uh, but for us it was the pulling of the anti-IPO in 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 December 2020. Um, ultimately, you know, stopped the path to monetization from our investment in Alibaba. Um, that caused us to halve our position in Alibaba quite quickly because that's generally you know the facts have changed. As I said, the facts changed, um, so we'll change our view quickly, uh, and we did. Um, after that, then it really was the trigger process. So as these companies triggered on a 20% fall from peak, which they did, Alibaba did in in February and, and Tencent did in, in April, um, you know, the price was telling us there was a problem. Um, and, and the more we looked at it, the more we realized there was a problem. Um, and, and so from that point of view, you know, we, we did the reviews, we did the reviews that we talked about. And, and the problem we had is we couldn't actually confidently say what the earnings of these companies were going to be in the long run. Um, the regulatory process had gone to the point where companies were being investigated and fined uh, and paying the fine and thanking the regulator for fining them all within the space of six weeks. Um, where Tencent was announcing on their earnings call that they'd donated 15 billion US dollars to a prosperity fund that the government had set up, um, you know, without really consulting us. Um, and these are all things that we understand that they need to do to operate in the country, but it, it, it just meant that we couldn't actually work out what the earnings of the company were going to be in the long run. And so the PE becomes irrelevant if you don't know what the year is. Um, and so ultimately we stepped to the sidelines in through March to May, and we sold all the stocks. And then since then, you know, others have come to the same conclusion. The calamities have have increased, the regulations increased, the earnings is harder to work out, and, and people are leaving. Um, and so the last and most important thing I'd say here is, is look, we have we are very positive on the Chinese economy. Okay. We are very positive on Chinese population growth, on urban wealth. Uh, and for a company like Starbucks or Nike, they will happily exploit that. Um, our issue is mainly around the listed Chinese corporates that are ultimately being used here to prop up other parts of the economy. Um, and, you know, so from our point of view, our capital doesn't need to be there. Um, you know, we don't have to be in China. We have other opportunities we can invest in. Uh, and ultimately, we've just chosen to take it away and put it somewhere else. Um, will we come back? Maybe. Um, we'd, we'd be looking for a lot more clarity on this regulatory situation. And, and you know, it really comes down to these checks and balances that, you, that you'll get with a US company or a UK company or Australian company, but you won't get in emerging markets. And right now, you particularly don't get it in China. And so from that point of view, um, we've moved on. We saw in the for-profit tutoring industry, basically a whole industry got turned from uh, a, a for-profit industry to a not-for-profit industry um, uh, overnight. Um, 
do you have concerns that that, that these kinds that could happen in, to other industries as well, or do you think that's probably just a, a fairly localized thing that that won't spread? I think I think my concern is I have absolutely no idea, Patrick. <laughs> I mean, the reality <laughs> is, is like you know, the the people who were invested in that industry would have told you two weeks before that they will never do this, and then they did it. Um, and then, so then, so from that point of view, my my big insight on China is even the people on the ground often don't really know what's happening. Um, but what I do know is that they can do it, and they have done it. So they've done it to to the education industry. So that was a big shoe to drop, and obviously we were out of the investments by then. The second thing they've done it obviously is, is the Macau with the review of the leases. And so people who know the area well will tell you this is just the way that they move forward. And 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 I have sympathy with that view. I have complete sympathy with that view. You know, it is an emerging market. We just need to respect that and respect that this is how that they, you know, they they feel the stones as they cross the river and the Chinese probably I suppose is the other one that they use. Um, we're just a global fund. I don't have to be. We don't have to be invested there. Um, we felt the risk reward was not good at the time uh, and stepped to the sidelines. It doesn't mean we won't come back. Um, but but I suspect a lot of people will come to the same conclusion as us, including local money in China. So put it simply, right, if you do that to the education sector or you do that to the Macau sector, why is foreign capital going to go to China? It's not. It's going to leave. And even domestic capital is going to leave. Um, and so just have a think about, you know, your property prices in, in Sydney and Melbourne. You know, if you're a Chinese person who's done well and your business got wiped out overnight, I, I, I suspect you're going to try and leave. And so I think a lot of capital is going to leave China. Um, and we just want to be out of the way while that happens. And, and then in the end, you know, I still, still see very strong prospects for the economy and very strong prospects into the future. Um, I think it's very unfortunate this has happened. We're, we're incredibly disappointed. We had, we were very excited about our investments in China, but, but we just have to, the facts, as I point out, have changed. And so we've changed our view. Um, and so that's why we stepped to the sidelines. What would you want to see before you re-entered that geography? Um, I just would like to see some sort of checks and balances. Um, and so from our point of view, you know, even if, you know, as, as problematic as an investment in Facebook is, and, you know, two years ago, you would have, you know, we probably did talk a lot about Facebook. Um, you know, the reality is, 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 you know, Facebook can appeal to the courts if the FTC tries to break them up. Uh, Facebook can appeal against its fines. Facebook has won cases against the DOJ. Google has won cases against the DOJ. And so there is a two-system segment of government in the US. There is the courts that you can use as a facility if, if, if the legislates against you. Um, it's, it's highly unlikely that's ever going to happen in China, but you would like to see some process of being able to appeal these situations and some elements that you know that the capital that our capital will be looked after if we put it there uh, and at the moment that's not there um, the only other thing that could happen is it gets so priced in that you know you, you end up buying it anyway because the marginally suggests that the capital has to come back there and I'm sure some people will do that um, we'd rather miss the first 20 percent than than, than, than than try and predict that well let's talk a little bit closer to home. Since we last spoke, although this was, I'm referring to when we were speaking face to face, not for a podcast, <laughs> I have been converted to HelloFresh. So thank you for that. <laughs> now a keen customer, despite my initial skepticism. I guess one of the things that I'm curious about is competition. As much as the product is, is brilliant, what is stopping a company like Woolworths or Coles from, you know, jumping into the market, 
taking advantage of their scale and distribution or, you know, or your overseas equivalent, your Tesco's in the UK or Walmart in the, in, in the US. What's stopping those companies from jumping in and, and gobbling up HelloFresh's business in much the same way, you know, Microsoft did to Netscape or, or the like? Um, yep, I agree. I mean, so from our point of view, we would look at HelloFresh, and it's important to stress that HelloFresh is just one idea in the fund. I mean, it's, it's got a bit of attention because everyone's ordered the product and has a view on whether the sweet potato they got was a good one or a bad one or whether they're happy <laughs> with what's going on. And, and I understand the problem company is having some logistical difficulties at the moment, like everyone is. So people probably aren't having as good an experience as they, they might have had over the years. Um I think the best way to think about it is a bit like Amazon, okay? So so, so ultimately, when we look at HelloFresh, we look at a largest part of e-commerce that's not been disrupted yet, um, which is which is groceries, okay? So so if you think about e-commerce, you know, your first thing you probably bought online was a piece of electronics um, or maybe a toy um, or even a, a DVD. Um, something like that would have been the first things you bought online. And then over time, you got used to buying other things online. So you eventually started buying clothes online. When you first started doing it, you're like, oh, doesn't fit. I can't return it. And then you got used to doing that. And then now you even buy furniture online. Um, you buy, you know, car parts online. Um, and so so the one that hasn't disrupted yet is groceries. Only up until 2019, 93% of all groceries were sold online in the United States. And it's the biggest market of the lot. So it's, 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 it's over a trillion dollar TAM. And so we were looking for a way to disrupt groceries. Um, and, and I think the thing you have to get your head around on HelloFresh is HelloFresh is not a subscription meal service. I mean, I know that's what it is, um, but it is effectively just another way of ordering your groceries online. So rather than ordering all your groceries online like you get delivered, you order these meal plans that ultimately take away the wastage and make your daily food shop, quite frankly, more simple. And if you speak to anybody who's a user, you know, they like they say, I like it because I don't have to think about what I'm going to cook for dinner tonight. Um, that's essentially why they think why they like it. So it's it's about convenience, not cost. Amazon was exactly the same. So we spent like a decade telling people e-commerce is not about price, it's about convenience. It's about getting something to your door on time, you know, ready, fresh, ready to go. In in Amazon's case, it was one day prime. And so that's all HelloFresh is doing. And so, so yes, you're right. Lots of other people could do it, but they're not going to do it as well as the leader does because they don't have the the distribution centers that they've built. They don't have the facilities. They don't have the ability to throw capital at it to create the experience that you're getting, to create the network effects that will that will create what happens. And so I'd argue you're right. Woolworths and Tesco are just as good a chance of being able to do it as David Jones and Meyer was of, of you know, setting up a decent e-commerce business to compete with Amazon. Like in theory, they could have. Like in theory, they could have, but they're, they're just as good a chance as doing it because logistically they can't, you know, they've got stores. They need people walking around the stores, picking up the things, putting in the boxes, whereas HelloFresh has an automated line. And so HelloFresh knows this, and so they just spend more money than everyone else to make sure they win. This is the Amazon model, um, and HelloFresh is just doing it to groceries, and, and so that's why we like it. It. Reminds me a lot of the old disruptors dilemma where, you know, a company doesn't want to disrupt its own business in order to get new business or to prevent a new disruptor from from taking their business. It's, it's partly that, but it really just comes down to the way you're set up. So, so all Amazon does is build, you know, so there's none here really in Australia, so it's hard to get your head around. But if you go to Ontario, for instance, in Canada, you know, there is four large distribution centres encircling Ontario, a city of 8 million people. And those four large distribution centres are within 40 minutes of one within 40 minutes of every house in Ontario. 
which basically means when you order something, you know, it's packed up, ready to go within six hours. And then it just takes another six hours or 12 hours to get to you. So that's one day shipping, done. Okay. If you do the same thing from, you know, a JB Hi-Fi or a Best Buy or a physical retailer, their inventory is stuck in stores all over Ontario or, or JB Hi-Fi, their inventory is stuck in stores all over Melbourne. And so they can't physically get it to you. They can do click and collect, which I think is a great idea and is a great way of fighting back against a, a, a logistics player like Amazon. But that's that's essentially how they're doing it. And, and HelloFresh is the same. And so if you, stored, if you started ordering your meal kits off Tesco, you know, ultimately they'd have to use the store, or sorry, or Woolworths, they'd have to use the store to fulfill it. And that would be people walking around the store. Or they have to build a whole new facility center, um, fulfillment center, which they haven't built yet. Um, and so, so HelloFresh just got the lead, which gives you the customer satisfaction, which gives you more customers, which gives you a bigger lead, which gives you the customer satisfaction, which gives you more customers, which gives you a bigger lead, which allows you to spend more money. And that's that's just the Amazon model. We've seen it time and time again in technology. We're hopeful it will work out with HelloFresh. It's important to remember it's a small company. You know, it's a competitive field, but it's only sort of a 12 billion euro company today. A um, couple of 33-year-olds running it. Uh, started it straight out of school in Germany. Um, you know, they've beat off hundreds of meal kit suppliers to be the number one in the world today, having, you know, delivered the first 10 boxes themselves. Um, and so it's just a great story. And, and But it's important to remember, coming back to what I said before, the runway in front of it is ginormous. It's the biggest TAM in the world. Um, obviously, other people will win. We don't expect HelloFresh to win it all itself. It only has to win a very small amount to be successful from here. We're not saying Woolworths and Coles won't do it, but we're just saying HelloFresh will take share. And it only has to take a little bit of share for the investment to be incredibly successful because it's actually number one in what it does in 14 countries around the world. Um, so it's got another 14 countries at least to go to uh, and more share to take. Um, so, so from that point of view, that's why we like it. It's got this huge runway in front of it. Facts haven't changed. Still the leader. Competition will come, but you know they can all win together. Um, and it's not expensive. So that's why we like it. Over the last six months or so, at various stages, there have been a lot of different kind of sectors and, and, and stocks that have sold off, particularly if you're going back kind of earlier this year, there was a, a lot of growth sectors were selling off. I'm curious which of your areas of interest and are now giving you the best hunting grounds for new opportunities, you know, in light of some of those more attractive prices. Yeah, so from our point of view, I mean, yes, so so obviously this year has been, you know, last year was a very strong year for us, for the fund and for, you know, I think the fund did more than 40% last year. Um, so, you know, this year is very much that mid-cycle transition year as we tighten rates and there's inflationary pressures and and all these things are, are going on, which are, you know, causing, you know, volatility um, in, a number of our, in a number of our stocks throughout the year. And, you know, this growth value stuff that you've been talking about earlier. Um, if you take a longer term view and decide that, you know, that the rates environment should stay reasonably stable and we are in a low rate environment and ultimately I get the inflation story, but ultimately it should be transitory um, in the future, then, then, and even if it's not, like even if rates do back up and it creates this big correction, you know, ultimately it's not going to, it's important to remember it doesn't change, you know, interest rates don't change who wins and loses in the long run. They just change the price you pay for them. Uh, and so, you know, these interest, these movements are creating opportunities for the winners because the winners will still be the winners. Um, it's just a function of what price you buy them at. Um, from our point of view, the two areas I'd point you to 
where there's been volatility this year, but but we're actually just getting to the point of acceleration, which is when we get really excited, um, would be uh, the climate area of interest. So so this is the energy transition. So the decarbonisation of the planet is clearly accelerating. Um, these stocks had a huge run last year as you know Joe Biden got elected and, and have really paused a bit this year. But ultimately, the opportunity is still very much in front of them. Um, so the climate area would be, be one I'd flag. And the other one that's actually done well this year, but has, has struggled a bit recently, uh, but again, we think is on the cusp of acceleration, not deceleration, uh, would be the semiconductors. Um, the semiconductor space is, um, is is one where probably, as we move into 22, you know, an area where, where you're going to see significant earnings surprises into the future, um, and the stocks are not expensive um, from our point of view. Taking a slightly longer term perspective, not so much looking at the volatility that we've seen in the last year or so, but more just thinking about, you know, the next 5, 10, 20 years. And I recognise the answer may be the same as, as to, the, to the last question, but which of the areas of interest do you think have the biggest growth opportunities ahead of, ahead of them? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I mean, it is the answer is the same as the last one. It is. It is the climate, and the um, and the and the semiconductor. The other area, obviously, is payments, where where there's a lot of, you know, disruption occurring at the moment. You know, we're sort of at this handoff for fintechs where cash just disappears altogether, and there's a lot of interesting fintech companies coming along um, that look quite interesting. But let's and you know that that takes you into cryptocurrencies and all these other things. So so you know there's obviously a lot going on in payments. There's a lot going on in decarbonisation, and then there's and then there's the semis. Um, clearly, decarbonisation is the big one. Um, and so let's let's just talk about that one specifically. Um, you know, if we think about you know, I said earlier, I talked about Apple, you know, it's the first smartphone coming along in 2008 and, you know, where that's taken us to. You know, back then, you know, we we're investing in Apple and smartphones were 10% of all phones sold in the world today. You know, and feature phones, you know, Nokia's, Ericsson's were like 90%. Um, as we sit here today, electric cars are roughly 3 to 5% of all cars sold in the world today. Um, renewable energy is less than 20% of all electricity generation globally. And electricity is actually only 20, 25% of the energy mix. Um, so, so, so if you truly want to decarbonize the planet, I uh, get to net zero by 2050, and that's the goal. Then electricity is a, as a share of just our gener- energy generation has to more than double. I oil has to be replaced with electricity, if that makes sense, to power all these electric cars. And then renewable share of electricity has to go from 20% to 80%. So, so you know, some simple mass tells you you're getting between an eight and a 16-fold increase in renewable energy over the next 30 years. Um, you know, there are a plethora of investments you could look at here, whether it's wind turbine generation uh, OEMs or whether it's solar equipment or whether it's um, the semiconductors. If you think about, you know, the net zero objectives that are that are that a BHP is putting in here in Australia with a sustainability report, you know, how on earth are they going to do this? Uh, you know, they need to retrofit their buildings to be net zero. They need to change their lights. They need to fix up their heating, ventilation, and cooling systems. And then you you just overlay that across every company on the planet that is all committing effectively to the same goal. You know, so it's an easy goal to say, an incredibly hard goal to do. Um, and so I'd suppose I'd just leave you with this: is we think it's a roughly a thirty to fifty trillion dollar expense to decarbonize the planet. 
Um, and that's a 30 to $50 trillion revenue opportunity for the companies that can provide these solutions. Um, and so from our point of view, you know, this has potential to be as big, big an opportunity as the internet was for the last 20 years. And so that's the one, that's the one that we sit and look at today and go, this is, this is what excites us about the next 10 years of doing our job. Well, could you tell us about a, a growth stock that you think is being materially mispriced by the market today? Just give us a bit of a thesis rundown why you, why you're attracted to it and what they do. Yeah, okay. Um, so, so, so you know, I'm going to combine the two I talked about here, so semiconductors and climate here. Um, oh, sounds and, perfect. <laughs> and so, so as you as you solve climate, for instance, um, you know, we all know it. It's going to involve a lot of electricity, as I said, and it's going to a lot involve a lot of battery power. Um, lots of people are looking at lithium that goes into batteries, or nickel, or, or battery manufacturers, or Teslas, etc. Um, the most under, or probably the most overlooked area of what's going to solve this is, 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 is power semiconductors. So these are semiconductors that sit at the core of, of, of how you transfer power, you know, so how you take power from one place to another, how you take battery from a battery to manage that power load into driving a drivetrain, if that makes sense. Um, and so you used to have these things as sort of cheap components that would sit inside a fridge or they'd sit inside a, you know, an electronic toy, for instance, that ran off batteries. And now they've got to sit inside these really big things like electric cars or they or electric buses or, um, you know, or, 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 you know, battery-powered renewable energy facilities. And so their total addressable market is effectively exploding. Um, the companies that make these things are, uh, there's four of them in the world, um, and, and the biggest one is in Germany called Infineon. Uh, and so that's probably the one I'd mentioned today, but th- th- there are other ones. Um, and they they make these they make these power semiconductors. They're really hard to make. Uh, it's a very complicated process, uh, and one has to pretty much be fitted in every solar, every wind turbine, every um, every electric car on the planet. Um, and so everyone's reading about the semiconductor shortage in the world today, um, and thinking it's a short term thing. And 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 we don't think it is. Um, and so to give you an idea, if you speak to Infineon, you know the the semi content that would go into a normal internal combustion engine car would be one hundred and sixty dollars per car. The semiconductor content that goes into an electric vehicle with some autonomous driving features will be sixteen hundred dollars. Um, and so as we go through this transition, you know, you're effectively going to get a tenfold increase in their addressable market. Um, and, and, and Infineon is, is the best of these plays but, and trades at roughly 26, 27 times earnings. Uh, but some of the smaller players in the place only trade at sort of 15, 16 times earnings. And so from that point of view, you know, they become like all semiconductors are. And the reason why we like them so much is they become the weapons manufacturers in the war or the, or the shovels in the boom. And so if you believe in decarbonisation and you don't want to get hung up on some solid-state battery concept or some, you know, electric vehicle manufacturer that doesn't produce a car and you just want to buy, you know, the, the shovels in the boom, the biggest shovel on the whole planet is Infineon and it's listed in Germany. That would be the one I'd point to. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the end of the main part of the interview. But as you may remember from your last appearance on the show, I have three favourite questions that I like to ask every one of my guests. Um, And if you've got another 10 minutes or so to hang around now, we can jump into those. Yeah, that'd be great. Cool. First of all, could you tell me about a book that's been uh, influential on your investment philosophy? What did you like about it? Yeah, so so I think last time I, I I gave you the second machine age, which I think is the best book on on digitalization to look at, and 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 
and uh, the, the authors have, 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 have escaped me again. Um, but but I think it's well worth, you know, it's still, you know, some of these books are like 10 years old, but they still very much predict what was going to happen. And, and and to get your head around digitalization, those concepts, it, it very much helped me at the time, um, five or six or, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and that's well worth a read. Um, the one I'm reading at the moment um, is actually, and or just recently finished, is The Great Disruption by Paul Gilding. Um, you know, this is this is actually again written, you know, five or six years ago, and and really flagging, you know, the the how how the world is going to cope with with you know decarbonisation and how the climate change agenda is going to be pushed on us. And so again, this is again to try and help us understand the concepts of of how we're actually going to get to this net zero and 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 what what's actually going to be required and. Um, I think it's a helpful read just just to take the completely different point of view um, as to is to you know to, to, to just really pe- to help people understand how big this task is, uh, how important it is to do, um, and how hard it's going to be to get done. And I, and I think really just frames you know some of the investment opportunities that are going to appear there, um, both on the long side, but also the things to avoid. That book, if you didn't catch the name of it, was The Great Disruption by Paul Gilding. It's got quite a long um, subtitle, Why the Climate Crisis Will Bring on the End of Shopping and the Birth of a New World. Uh, That other book, if you didn't catch it, was The Second Machine Age, another one with a nice long subtitle, Work, Progress and Prosperity in a Time of Brilliant Technologies. And that one's written by Andrew McAfee, uh, and this one's going to be a bit harder, Eric Brynolfsson, I think that's right. As always, I'll put a link in the wire to this podcast to those two books, both on Amazon and and Booktopia. So if you're looking for those, didn't catch the name, weren't sure how to spell it, just jump on livewiremarkets.com, navigate to the wire for this podcast, and you'll see the link in there. Could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience? Yeah, so so the biggest winner for the Monroe Global Growth Fund um, since inception is is Amazon, um, and and it's our biggest winner of all time. Um, the the key thing that we did when we bought Amazon, it was roughly four hundred dollars a share, um, and so that's you know just under a thousand percent ago now. Um, and so from that point of view, we actually thought we'd missed it, you know, so it had already gone up a lot. It was already a very, very expensive company. Um, people thought it didn't make any money. This is back in 2013. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's the first, well, it wasn't the first time, but we, we just built a very detailed model. Um, and so I think for people listening, you know, there is a huge benefit in building a financial model on a company. Um, and the financial model on Amazon we built at the time. Um, you know, showed us that, you know, this company was still very much at the start of its journey, not at, not at the end. And, and we talked about investing in the journey. And, and so ultimately that, that got us to buy the company at $400. And that financial model we've now updated every quarter for, for the best part of nearly a decade now. Uh, it's the most profitable spreadsheet I've ever built. Um, and so from that point of view, <laughs> that financial model just, just helps you understand how these companies continue to grow at the rate they grow at. Um, which which just confounds people all the time, and and it also helps you understand the cash flow and how they are funding it. Um, and I just think for for everyone investing, you want to be able to get to the point where you can build at least a financial model to prove what what is the potential upside. Like what is what could this actual company be worth, not next year, but at some point in the future. And and once you do that, you'll you'll be able to hold your view a lot better on that journey that we talked about at the start of the podcast. 
Well, I have one more question for you. But before I ask it, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. I'm not actually suggesting to anybody that you should go out there and put all of your money in a single stock and forget about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if markets were going to close for the next five years starting from tomorrow and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? It's always a tough question, this one, Patrick. <laughs> That's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> um, look, I mean, it's it's done well recently, but but I'm I'm going to say it again. Um, and you've probably heard me talk about it before. Is, is ASML? Um, it's a company we've owned since day one in the Munro Global Growth Fund. Um, it's a it's a Dutch company that makes lithography equipment. Okay, so lithography equipment is is effectively what's driving the shrink of semiconductors, which is what's driving all human progress on the planet today. Uh, and so as semi shrink, um, we continue to be able to do more things with them. Um, obviously, things like artificial intelligence, voice recognition, uh, this podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, at the moment, shrink is getting very, very hard. There's a handful of companies that, that control this process. Um, and they like the companies like ASML that does the lithography and TSMC that does the foundry uh, and Samsung that does the foundry. And so so at the end of the day, the reason why I say ASML is because it's the one company that no one can live without at the moment. It's the one that allows these node transitions to continue. Um, and so we like to call it the most important company in the world that no one's ever heard of. Um, it's had a good run lately. Um, so maybe not on a six-month view, but on a five-year view. You know, this company is a monopoly in what it does, and and all 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 human progress will not continue without them. Um, and you know, you can buy all of that for thirty four times earnings today. Uh, and so that's why we that's why we'd point to ASML. Excellent. Well, Nick, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Always enjoy hearing your insights about uh, what's happening in the world of technology and global growth. So thanks for taking the time out of your day. Thanks very much for having me, Patrick, and, uh, and, and appreciate the interest. Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.